This morning we will be looking at 1 Samuel 5. It's a shorter chapter than we have been looking at previously, 12 verses. Continues the story of the Ark of the Covenant that we began with in chapter 4. If you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. For the word of the Lord is completely authoritative. The word of the Lord is completely sufficient. And the word of the Lord is completely without error. 1 Samuel chapter 5. When the Philistines captured the ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it up beside Dagon. And when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face down on the ground before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and put him back in his place. But when they rose early on the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face down on the ground before the ark of the Lord, and the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. This is why the priests of Dagon and all who enter the house of Dagon do not tread on the threshold of Dagon and Ashdod to this day. The hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod. And he terrified and afflicted them with tumors, both in Ashdod and its territories. And when the men of Ashdod saw how things were, they said, The ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is hard against us and against Dagon our God. So they sent and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, What shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? They answered, Let the ark of the God of Israel be brought round to Gath. So they brought the ark of the God of Israel there. But after they had brought it round, the hand of the Lord was heavy against that city, causing of great panic. And he afflicted the men of the city, both old and young, so that tumors broke out on them. So they sent the ark of the God to Ekron, But as soon as the ark of God came to Ekron, the people of Ekron cried out, They have brought round to us the ark of the God of Israel to kill us and our people. They sent, therefore, and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, Send away the ark of the God of Israel and let it return to its own place, that it may not kill us and our people. For there was a deathly panic throughout the whole city. The hand of God was very heavy there. The men who did not die were struck with tumors, and the cry of the city went up to heaven. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we come into your presence this morning, and we hear from you in your word. We pray, O Lord, that you would reveal your word to us, that by the power of your Spirit you would illuminate our hearts and our minds, that we would not just read your Word, but that it would take deep root within us, that we would seek to know you and who you are and how you act. This we ask in Christ's precious name. Amen. 
a question for you this morning. Who do you want God to be? Now, I think that probably sounds like an odd question coming from the pastor in the midst of a worship service. Isn't the pastor supposed to tell us who God is and what we should believe? Well, that is what the scripture says, but I'd like to just dwell for a moment, give some thought as to who you would like God to be. Because if we are honest with ourselves, there is the temptation within our hearts that we want a God who is powerful, but not so powerful that he gets in our way. We want a God who is in control and sovereign, just not sovereign over every area of our life, so we've got some room to maneuver. You see, the truth is, we often want a God that is an extension of our desires and our will. That, my friends, is not the God of the Bible. It is the God of a great many people in the world today, but it is not the God of Scripture. And here this morning in 1 Samuel chapter 5, the Lord God Himself reveals to us through the Philistines, and He reveals also to the Israelites just who He is. I'd like us to see three aspects of who God is this morning from chapter 5. First, we see that God is an unparalleled God. There is no God like God. There are no even similar gods. He is completely without parallel. Secondly, we see that God is an unstoppable God. That nothing can stop the will and work of the Lord our God. And then thirdly, we see that he is an undefeated God, which is important for us to remember, especially at times in which we are afraid that the cause of Jesus Christ may be defeated by the enemy. God is unparalleled. He is unstoppable. And he is undefeated. Let's begin then by looking at who God is, that he is unparalleled. He is like No other God. The world has been filled, not just in our day, but back in the days of the Israelites, with false comparisons to God. God does not lack for competition. There are other so-called gods that people are constantly trying to compare the Lord to. And so here in chapter 5, we see the Philistines capturing the ark of God and bringing it to the temple of their god, Dagon. How did we get here to this place? Verse 1 reminds us that the ark has been captured. But remember how we got here was that Israel thought that they could control God. That God was a, a power at their disposal. And when they needed him, they could bring him out to be victorious in battle. You may remember also that they thought that they could put pressure on God to respond to their desires and wills. They wanted to pressure God to defeat their enemy. Because you remember how they reasoned from this is, they were about to go into battle against the enemy, and they brought the ark of God, and if God didn't come through, then he would be embarrassed that he would be the laughingstock. And so they reasoned that God had to come through and to win for them. Now, 
you recall that this was especially naive thinking, considering that they had the ark of the living God brought to the battle by the two wicked priests that were defiling the temple of God and whom God had prophesied would be destroyed along with their whole family. So the Israelites really were not thinking about God and who He is, but rather about God and what He could do for them. Now this morning, what we're going to see is who God is. Because as I asked you before, many people think about the kind of God that they want. Israel had already answered that question for us. The kind of a God that they wanted was a God who was safe for them, but powerful to aid them against their enemies. Oftentimes, that's our concept of God. We don't want God to intrude into our lives. We don't want a God who makes demands. We don't want a God who gives us commandments. We don't want a God who is sovereign. But what we want is a God who is just powerful enough to help us when we need it. We want an extension of our will. A force that we can call on in time of need. Now, the only problem is, if this is the God that we want, then he's not really different from anyone else's concept of God. The only difference is, who is able to tap into God's power? He is certainly not the God of the Bible. Because the Philistines' view of God is the lens through which they view all of these events that are going on. When they had the battle, their view of God was that God was a local, portable deity. That God was an extension of the power of His people. And so, they reasoned that they could beat God, because their God could be bigger than Israel's God. In their mind, Israel's God was no more than a force. And it was not necessarily more powerful than them and their god, Dagon. Now, their understanding would be that this is, of course, why we won the battle. We won the battle because our god is bigger than your god. And their god was a god by the name of Dagon, 1 Samuel 5 tells us. Now, what we know about Dagon is that he was the god of crops and fertility. Now... This should sound familiar to you because almost every time we talk about a pagan god in the Old Testament, it's a god who is in charge of crops and growing and fertility. Have you ever wondered why that is? Well, imagine for a moment that Kroger doesn't exist. Nor H-E-B, nor Randall's, no Whole Foods, no Trader Joe's. There is no supermarket that you can go to buy food to eat. The only way you are going to eat is if on your land you plant and grow food and harvest it. Now, if that's the only way you're going to get to eat, you are going to take a very keen interest in how the harvest comes out, right? No food, no eat. No eat, die. And so it is not surprising that in Israel's day that so many of the gods were gods of the crops and of fertility because that's what people needed more than anything. They needed help. They needed power so they could eat. 
You see, that's their view of God. Their view of God is that he is around to help them through their difficult times. The God of the Philistines was nothing more than a resource for them. Now, at its root, those who fashion gods really think that they have the power to do this. They get to decide what they need, and then they make a god to help them. Now, this doesn't just happen in the days of the Old Testament. It actually happens in our day and age, too. Now, I don't expect for you to go home and to look in your neighbor's backyard and to see an idol set up to the god of grass growing or the god of full shrubs. I don't expect to see that. But I want you to think for a moment about science. Now, I don't mean the scientific method. I don't mean the periodic table of elements. I don't mean the laws of gravity. I don't mean that we test theories through action to determine the laws of the universe. What I mean is science with a capital S. Science that proposes itself as the ultimate answer to everything. So take, for example, the Big Bang. Have you ever had a conversation with someone about creation and they ask you, how did the world come about? And you say, well, God tells us in his word that he created all things in six days. And they look at you and they laugh and they say, how could you be so naive and silly? Everyone knows there's no God and he didn't create the world. I encourage you then to ask them and say, well, then how did the world come about? And of course, they will answer, well, the Big Bang. The Big Bang made the world. And now you have my permission to become a five or six-year-old. I want you to look at them and say, well, what made the Big Bang? And if they come up with an answer, then you say, well, what made the thing that made the Big Bang? Well, what made the thing that made the thing that made the thing that made the Big Bang? Because you see, there is no ultimate answer. But you see, people in our day, that's what they posit with science. They want to say science or say Big Bang or say billions and billions of years as if it answers the ultimate question. But it doesn't. It doesn't answer how you get something from nothing. It doesn't answer the purpose of the world. But you see, to them, science is a convenient way of winning the argument, of establishing their truth of bringing victory and ending all debate. This is very similar to how the Philistines viewed their God. Now, notice who the conquerors are in our story this morning. We see it easily in verses 1 and 2. The subject of all of these active verbs are the Philistines. They are the ones capturing. They captured. They brought. They took. They brought. They set up. Over and over again, they are the ones in control. They have won the victory, and so they bring God to serve Dagon. Now, it's interesting to me that they make no attempt at all to destroy the ark. Does that strike you as odd? Because, you see, if they viewed the ark as some kind of portable power box sort of like an ancient nuclear weapon that Israel could use against them. If it was to be weaponized, you'd think the first thing they would do is deactivate it. They would destroy it. But that's not how they view it. 
You see, they view the ark as the God of Israel. Now, you may say, but pastor, you just told us that the ark of Israel is a wooden box overlaid with gold smaller than our communion table. How could they think that's God? Well, they thought a statue standing in the temple of Dagon was God. So why wouldn't they think a box would be God? It was just a different God. And so they bring that God into the temple of Dagon to serve Dagon, so that's yet more power for them. In their viewpoint, they've captured God, and now God needs to serve them, to help them. You see, most importantly here, what they want is for God to remain in their midst so long as He sits and is quiet. And this actually is the way most people live their lives. They're happy to acknowledge a vague God. They're happy to have a God as long as God sits, doesn't interrupt them, doesn't make any demands on them, and is not interfering. That's the kind of God that they want. And that's what the Philistines thought the God of Israel was. Now, almost no one has no God. Even those who profess atheism as loudly as they can, they have a God. They just call their God the Big Bang. Or they call their God science. Or they call their God creation. And there are still many in our day and age who worship false gods. Not unlike Dagon. Gods who are resources for them to be tapped into. Others want to fashion God after their own desires to make themselves supreme. And this is actually what Israel had done. They had ignored God's word, and they had made God in their image after what they had wanted. But you see, all of these are false comparisons. So then who is God? If these are false comparisons, how do we know the unparalleled God? The way we know the unparalleled God is by seeing His true Supremacy. You see, the Lord is going to show all of us, Israelites and Philistines alike, who is God. The Philistines had put their master stroke in action. They had put the ark before Dagon. And now they were showing God who was boss. That Dagon was in charge. That he was the big God. Israel had failed. And now God's cause was lost. Can you just imagine the way they treated this? They're bringing the ark into the temple. Who won? We did. We're the Philistines. Who's the best God? Dagon's the best God. Yeah, yeah. Give me a high five for Dagon. Everybody tell me Dagon's the best. Who's the best? Dagon. What'd you say? Dagon. What about God? Oh, no. Look him there. He's serving Dagon. You could just imagine their pride, their arrogance, because they had won a battle. They actually thought that they could capture God. Now, this is not unlike what we see today. A picture here of the Philistines celebrating. Now, remember what's going on in Israel right at the time that this is happening, at the beginning of chapter 5. What's happening in Israel is the messenger is coming and saying, Woe is us. The army's been defeated. The sons of Eli have been killed. The ark has been taken. Eli hears the news and he falls over dead. 
His daughter-in-law hears the news and she gives birth and dies in childbirth. At the same time, it appears to everyone in Philistia that they have conquered God and they are victorious. And it appears to everyone in Israel that all is lost. Doesn't that sound a lot like the way we can view the world today? You see, modern man seems to have secularized all of life. Hasn't he? How welcome is the Bible in the public square? How welcome is an understanding of God and of Jesus Christ and His Word in our universities? How welcome in our discussions are the commandments and statutes of God? Doesn't it seem like all of the church's battles are being lost? Like the Israelites, we trot God out to win our battle. We see something very important. We say, they're trying to redefine marriage. What do we do? Let's bring out God. We could beat them. We've got God on our side. And then the world wins. And we say, oh, that won't happen again. And then they begin to redefine the most basic of structures, gender. You think you can't get more basic than a man is a man and a woman is a woman. But they're redefining all of that. And again, we bring out God and we fight this battle. And what happens? We lose. And then we say, We want our culture to be Christian. We want to know that people understand the things of God's word. We want our values to be established so our children can grow up in a place that honors God. And what do we see? We're losing that battle too. Everywhere we look, we're losing. And if we're not careful, it could be very depressing, can't it? Because we're fighting these battles. We should win. We're on the right side. They're the bad guys. We're the good guys. We're praying those prayers. We got our special verses that we use. We're bringing God out. What are you doing, God? God seems more and more irrelevant in our world today than ever, doesn't he? And it shouldn't surprise us why young people don't have a passion for God. He can't win. Who wants a God who's not powerful and can't win? I want to be successful in my life. I want to have a big house, a fast car, a beautiful wife, obedient kids. If God can't bring me that, what good is God? That's the view of our world today. But praise be to God, he gets our attention in verse 3. The next day, the Philistines get up. And Dagon is fallen flat on his face. Now, how could that happen? Remember, the Israelites have been defeated. They're busy complaining and crying. The Philistines were the ones who were victorious. How can Dagon fall off of his pedestal, so to speak? Who could have possibly done this? Now, Again, for us to understand what is going on here, the end of verse 3 is, I think, one of the funniest verses in all of the Bible, if you understand it right. So they took Dagon, and they put him back in his place. Some God that is. The God who can't even get himself back up again. The God who is dependent 
on those he rules over to pick him up off the ground and dust him off and stand him back up again. Doesn't sound like much of a God to me, does it? But you see, that's who the God of the Philistines is. And so, we have to understand here is that the God of the Philistines is completely dependent upon men. He is completely helpless apart from those whom he rules over. And there is an irony here in the language. The writer of 1 Samuel, as I think, he enjoys this humor. It's very choice. And so he says, And so they took Dagon and put him back in his place. And the word for took is the same Hebrew word for capture that is used about the ark in chapter 4. In chapter 4, verse 11, in verse 17, in verse 19, in verse 21, in verse 22, and even again in verse 1 of chapter 5. Over and over again, the Philistines are taking all this credit for taking the ark. And now here, they have to take their God out of the dirt and stand him back up again. But God is not done yet. Because after they stand him up, a day goes by, and then they come back, and lo and behold, Dagon is on the ground again. Except now, his head and his hands have been cut off. Now, why is that, do you think? It will not surprise you if I tell you that, an, that a part of ancient warfare was after an army was victorious, oftentimes they would go to the corpses of their enemy and they would cut off their heads and their hands as trophies to bring back as a sign of victory. That's exactly what God is doing to the God, so-called, of the Philistines. Ralph Davis puts it wonderfully. He has a wonderful way of turning a phrase. He says that Dagon is... A regular Humpty Dumpty with no Elmer's glue. He's on the ground, broken up. And what God is doing is he's knocking the godness out of this false god. He's showing how obvious that Dagon is no god. He is no help. He can't even keep himself upright. How could he possibly defeat the God of Israel? What the Lord is doing is showing everyone including his enemies, who is the only true God. And so the Philistines go from confident victory to defeat. Now there's something interesting that happens here as well. Look at the end of verse 5. The priests of Dagon who enter the house of Dagon do not tread on the threshold of Dagon in Ashdod to this day. Now this is kind of an advanced Bible time version of Step on a crack, break your mother's back. You ever played that game? You have to jump over the sidewalks? Superstitious? You see, that's exactly what they're doing here. They remember, the author says, to this day, that that's where Dagon fell. And they don't step on that crack because they're afraid God's going to hit them with a lightning bolt or something. To this day, they're afraid. Now, put this in the context our author is telling us that the Philistines will remember this for many, many years into the future. Why could Israel not remember? Israel saw the power of God in what he did in Egypt. They saw what he did in the wilderness. 
They saw what he did in the conquering of the promised land. And yet once they settle in, they've forgotten all of that and they view God as some kind of power to be tapped into. But the Philistines don't forget. There is no one like God. We cannot be tempted to find answers elsewhere than God. And we should not be disappointed in God simply because He does not do what we want when we want it. He is like no other. He is supreme. Now let me ask you a question that goes back to our first question. Would you want a God like Dagon that you could control but who had no real power at all? You see... Only God is the unparalleled God. The second thing we begin to see is that God is unstoppable. We see this through the heavy hand of God that he puts on the Philistines. Now there is a great irony here that Dagon has no hands. And yet we are told that the hand of God was heavy on the Philistines. Now this is just the beginning of the lesson for the Philistines in the school of God. Again, remember the context. They had won the battle. They had captured the ark. They had made God a prize for Dagon. But God is showing that events do not determine who he is. They should be celebrating, and instead we are told that they are terrified. In verse 6. They are terrified and afflicted. Now, What this means is, is that they are appalled, they are desolate, they are despairing, they are completely frightened at the the concept of God. They are breaking out in all sorts of tumors and diseases and sores. Now, I don't know exactly what kind of disease the Philistines have. The Bible hasn't seen fit to tell me. And I don't think we need to waste our time trying to worry about it. But we do know one very important thing. It was really bad. People were dying. The people who weren't dying were crying out, wishing they were dead. God is afflicting them heavily with his hand. Now this is something else we should see, because the hand of God is heavy upon them. Now what does this mean? Well, obviously it means that the plagues are bad that they're getting. That's heavy. (coughs) But the other thing we should know is that in the Hebrew, the word for heavy is the same word for glory. The idea is that it is weighty. It is important. Now, I'm going to date myself a little bit. Young people don't speak like this anymore. They don't tweet this. This isn't a caption on an Instagram. But way back, Back when I was really young, even when my parents were young, people had a habit of saying something. When they saw something really remarkable, they would say, man, that's heavy. Right? Some of you remember. You're nodding with me. Right? It's the same kind of concept. You see, God is heavy. He's actually the heaviest because he's weighty because of his glory. Now, think about this for a moment. In chapter 4, verse 21, we are told that the glory of God has departed from Israel. But really what we're being told here is somebody is getting glory 
in Philistia, isn't he? Somebody is heavy in Philistia. It's God. You see, the Philistines thought that they could carry God so that the victory would be won. But really, this was no different than resetting Dagon up in his place. You see, we need to stop thinking that God needs us to support him. He will do just fine by himself. The irony here is, is that after the defeat of Israel, God defeats the Philistines all by himself. The Philistines are ready to surrender and give up. There's no battle being fought. It's just God's hand is against them. You see, God does not need to be carried by Israel. It's actually the exact opposite. God carries his people. It's a wonderful passage in Isaiah 46, verses 1 through 4, that highlights the distinction between false gods who have to be carried and the true God who carries his people. Baal bows down. Nebo stoops. Their idols are on beasts and livestock. These things you carry are borne as burdens on wary beasts. They stoop, they bow down together. They cannot save the burden, but themselves go into captivity. So the false gods have to be put on animals to move around because they have no ability to move. They're false. Listen to me, O house of Jacob, all the remnants of the house of Israel, who have been born by me from before your birth, carried from the womb, even to your old age I am he, and to gray hairs I will carry you. I have made, and I will bear. I will carry, and I will save. That is the God of the Bible. He carries his people. So what do the Philistines do? In the face of this unstoppable God, they are not so brave anymore. Do you remember the previous comment that the Philistines made? When they saw the ark brought to the battlefield, they said, we all just got to be super brave. We could beat this God. Our God could be bigger than that God. Just let's all be brave and fight and be courageous. But God has convinced them now, at least that he is not theirs to control. When they see how bad things are now, they're not so brave anymore. They say, it must not remain with us, this ark. For his hand is hard against us and against Dagon, our God. This God beats our God. We've got to get rid of this God. We can't keep up with him. And so what they want to do is they want to minimize the damage. They're not yet ready to concede defeat and acknowledge that God is God. And so what they do is they gather together and they come up with a plan. Because they aren't exactly stupid either. They don't want to just have things keep happening like they're happening. And so they gather together in a group and they say, I've got an idea. Let's send it to Gath. Now, why would they send it to Gath? I think there's at least two reasons that we can gain from our knowledge of Gath. First, Gath is the Philistine city farthest from all of the other Philistine cities. It's always a good idea that when you think there's something carrying the bubonic plague, that you ship it away. It's also the city that's closest to Israel. So maybe they think to themselves, you know, if we put the ark there, maybe God won't be that cranky anymore. Maybe he'll be satisfied to be close to Israel. Maybe he'll stop 
But the problem is, is that this doesn't resolve anything. And so God teaches them another lesson. He's not some kind of localized deity. He's not like their gods. His power and his rule do not depend on location. They don't depend on people. They don't depend on formulas. Why? Because God is God. And so it breaks out all over again in Gath. So what do they do now? I know, I know what we'll do. Let's send it to Ekron. Ekron's going to love the ark. Let's send the ark to Ekron. But before the ark can even get there, you can picture the scene. The leaders come out, and they're standing at the edge of the city saying, Oh, no, you don't. We don't want that ark here. Are you trying to kill us? Are you nuts thinking we would want this ark? Do you think we don't know what's been going on? We can't handle this. And so you see the Philistines tumbling downhill, first thinking they can control, well, we'll just set Dagon back up. Oh, well, we'll just move the ark. Oh, we'll just move the ark again. Now there is a panic, the text tells us. They are, they are lost. It's as if they've been defeated in the war. God is completely victorious here. They learned a valuable lesson that we should take to heart. That God is not to be trifled with. That there is no resisting God when he makes his power clear. Now, we may be able to deceive ourselves during times of God's mercy and patience to think that we can overcome God. But God is unstoppable. And what that means is today is the day to surrender to God. Not tomorrow. God is unstoppable in his holiness. He is unstoppable in his law. And he has declared that we have sinned against him. That we are stained by sin. That we are lost in darkness and night. And we cannot wait God out. We must go to the Lord immediately in the provision that he has made in the Lord Jesus Christ. It is only through Christ that God is stopped. Not because of resistance, but because God has given us his mercy and grace in Christ. Jesus stops the wrath of God. This is something we must understand. There is a final thing that we learn this morning from this chapter. And that is that God is not only unparalleled, He is not only unstoppable, He is undefeated. Now, this is much more than a funny story. I think it's a funny story. I think the author wants us to see the humor and how these people prop up their own God and how they think they can maybe move God around and and get away from God. There is indeed humor in this text, but it is more than that. It is also written for our instruction, and we are to learn things about ourselves and about God. First, it teaches us about ourselves, that we are not as powerful as we think we are. Brothers and sisters, we spend an awful lot of time focusing on ourselves. What's our strategy going to be with the culture? How will we marshal our forces? What will we do? What tasks will we undertake? How will we use God's word against our enemies as sort of a verbal arc? 
And often when we are engaged with the world, all we are concerned with is our own strength. But we must see here from this story that Israel was weak. They actually couldn't have been weaker. They had lost twice to the Philistines, once after they brought the ark out. All of their plans went bad. And it was at their weakest moment that God showed himself strong. Israel could take none of the credit for this victory that has been won. This is so like God. It's not just how he wins wars. It's how he defeats sin. It's how he molds you into the image of Christ. It's how he equips you to deal with temptation. It's how he makes you stand in the face of your enemies. Paul put it this way, saying that God told him, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect when? In weakness. You see, God shows himself strong when we are weak. So if you feel weak today, I've got good news for you. You don't need to get stronger. God is strong. You don't need to get it together. God has it all together. You see, the Lord doesn't wait for us to win his victories. The Lord wins his victories with his own might and power. The second thing we need to learn is that the defeats that we experience, like Israel, are not because our enemies are so strong. Because that's the other temptation that comes to us. That when things go wrong, we overestimate the power of our enemy. Aren't you tempted to do that right now in our day? Oh, we'll never control the universities. They're lost. Oh, the media, don't even get me started. Oh, the government. Oh, the culture. They're unassailable. We can't do anything. We may as well fold up our tents and go home. There's no resisting the power that the world has. The future seems so bleak to us, doesn't it? How can we possibly stop what is happening? The forces against the Lord and the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, you see, we need to understand that our weakness and our defeat come not from the strength of our enemies, but they come from our wandering away from God. You don't need to find greater power and skill. You need a deeper relationship with the Lord. You don't need a secret weapon. What you need is a depth of love for God. When the church seeks out the Lord and puts the honor of the Lord above all else, when Christians are faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ and His Word, then we will be victorious and it won't matter how powerful the enemy is. Finally, we learn from our text this morning about who God is. That God is The living God. He is not one to be controlled like an object. We have to learn that we must deal with God. That we cannot ignore Him. He is not something to be sidestepped or controlled or manipulated. God is also the only God. Now what that means for us is we cannot be like the Philistines and just to make some room for God in our life. 
to set him alongside the other idols that we have. Idols of wealth or fame or family. God will not be one in a pantheon. He's the only God. We must submit to him in all things. Why? Because he's God. He is the only true God. And the good news is that he is exactly the kind of God that we need. He's unlike any other God. He cannot be stopped. He cannot be defeated. He is the only true living God. And sin itself cannot stop God from displaying His glory. God delights in showing His power and grace in a way that gives glory to no one else. And the greatest moment of victory in all of history came in what looked to be a defeat. Didn't it? when it looked as if the mission of Jesus Christ was lost, that the enemy was triumphant, when all there was was weakness, at the cross of Christ, God displayed His power and His grace. Jesus is strong in our weakness. Now the good news is, not just that Jesus won the victory without us. He did. But the good news is that Jesus won the victory for Philistines like us. Because you see, we had rebelled against the Lord. We had tried to manipulate the Lord. We had tried to do without God. And Jesus won the victory for us. So this morning, give up on yourself, give up on your own works. Run to the one who is unparalleled, who is unstoppable, and who is undefeated. Run to the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray.